Fight! Welcome to the Philosophy of Fighting Podcast with your hosts, Arturo and Anu. So let's start this off the same way we've always started. If you can fight anyone in any era, who would you fight and why? Okay. I am fighting Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York State. Right? He's a powerful man. He is the son of a former governor, right? So I feel like he had it easier to get to where he is. He was probably given so much. He acts very machismo. And the reason I pick him this week is because New York State just legalized marijuana. And I think a lot of politicians want to pat themselves on the back, like, look what we did. But really, any high school student 20 years ago writing a report could figure out this should have been done forever ago. You do not deserve a pat on the back. You should be ashamed of yourselves that so many people got arrested and in trouble and were abused by the state for smoking grass, right? And so your brother posted a great meme, like, haha, jokes on you, Cuomo. I've been high the entire time. And so I feel like I want to fucking fight him. Go, yeah, I've been high the entire time. And I would also love to fight any politician that still believes it should be illegal. And so I feel like your kids probably smoke weed and your friends probably smoke weed, but they don't get in trouble because you know them and you have connections to make sure they don't get in trouble. And some regular kids from other areas always get in trouble and Mm -hmm. you could not get financial aid, you know, it could ruin your opportunity to go to college. Like, you know, like you go to jail for 10, 20 days in Georgia you could lose your job, right? And then it just fucks you up so much more and it's just pathetic. So yeah, and obviously I'm a weed smoker. So I feel like <laughs> I have some juice behind this and plus Cuomo has been in the news for sexual harassment and stuff. And that is terrible, but I feel like it's worse to be in jail, right? And like lose your relationships and have that stain on your record for something so small. And I think, uh, yeah, tens of thousands of people have been fucked over by it. So yeah, yeah, Andrew Cuomo, that's my passion. That's what that's I'm fighting. Pick. That's a good pick. I feel like so many people's first jobs or first businesses were selling weed to like oh, friends, yeah. making a little bit of money and then like organizing it and budgeting. And I feel like, yeah, why punish those people too? You know, like they're just- Yeah, I'm sure there was like a ton of successful people that kind of started like that too. Like, like big people. Like yeah. I can see like, you know, like a Mark Cuban or something like that, where they were like, That's yeah. exactly like, what I was thinking. You know I mean? Mark, Cuban, Mark Cuban, I think, ran a bar or managed a bar when he was mm-hmm. at Indiana University. And so like, how is that different than selling weed, right? He's get, right. getting people drunk, like having a good time. Like it's exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So who are you going to battle with and for what reason? All right. So my pick this week is none other than, I don't know, maybe he's former now, but UFC president Dana White. Really? Yeah. Why, why are you, Dana's a big boy. He trains Dana too. is a big boy. That's, I mean, this guy watches so many fights, so it's not like he doesn't know anything. Yeah, 100%. He also, he also used to box. He's mm-hmm. still kind of like boxes for fitness, although his fitness doesn't really show it, so maybe... He's not so much, but I don't know. For me, yes, he's brought the sport to where it is, but he's also holding it back from where it could be. And I I just don't like how he promotes. 
Like the, the fighters aren't paid fairly and he'll constantly like give his opinion of what he thinks about a fighter's performance and be really quick to shit on someone. They're not just your employee as a fighter. They're also your product. So why wouldn't you want to sell them? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't like that he does that. And then my biggest thing, this is probably like the, the, the top reason is that he'll always blame fighters for not taking a fight all the time. Like he'll offer up a fight to them. And if they say no, he's always blaming the fighter. Ah, oh, he's not really here to like fight. He's trying to do this or that. He's always doing something. Fighter is looking out for their best interest and their best interest is your best interest. Mm-hmm. So if you can't see that, you're not the right guy. Dozens of fighters are saying this. You're not the guy. Yeah, the, the meme has become that, like, he keeps telling people they don't want to fight. But can I ask you this? Yeah, he called John Jones scared. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's why. No, dude, he wants the money. He's going to yeah. fight him. I think, I don't think John Jones is scared, like a person that wants to avoid the fight. But I think uh, John Jones is negotiating, and he's negotiating in public. But John Jones also has a record that shows like he's fucked over the company a bunch too, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, it's like a little bit. So here's the thing. Okay. So here's the thing. If Dana would have just been like, no, the reason why John doesn't want to fight is because he wants more money. But let's be honest. He's never sold a million pay-per-view buys. Yeah. Okay. That's rationale I can get behind. You don't say he's scared. Get out yeah. of here, dude. Like that, that's, again, you can't give your opinion. You, like you're not, it's uncalled for. So how does that fight play out, you think? So I looked up Dana White. Dana White is 5'10", 95 kilograms, so like 210 pounds. So it's not that big. I feel like I read he put up plate, uh, three plates. Like so he benches a lot. Maybe just does like okay. vanity muscles. Okay. He's not that big. Over 200, no problem. He wanted okay. to box Tito, and I felt like he was confident that he could beat okay. Tito. I'm, I'm longer than him. I'm taller than him. I'm faster than him. And I know more than him. I'm pretty confident on this one. Let's see if he's ever done, like, like what belt he is. He definitely has to keep training, or no, he's just over it. He's well, just I like- would say just he's seen thousands of fights that he should understand when he's in trouble and when he isn't. Like, he knows stuff like that. Does he know how to actively pursue things and chain things up? Maybe, maybe not. Like, even if you've seen it a dozen times, if you don't have that feel, if you don't understand that, like, feedback of, like, I'm putting my weight on the guy, so that way when they do move, I, I can feel where they're moving towards. You know, like, all that stuff is uh, that subtle, unconscious stuff. Yeah, I think you'd win. Dana White just rubs me as the person that probably can't even kick anyone older than 10 years old in the head do you know what i mean like there's no flexibility there like i don't gotta worry about that guy kicking me no (laughs) chance right and you think he's got the speed to take me down i'll I'll take those chances that that's all he he might have power yeah maybe yeah maybe he gets that hand in i guess yeah i would love to find out and i thought about this i think this would just be really funny because dana white you know he always gets a mic in front of him and he's always able to kind of like shit on these fighters. So if I were to pick a coach, it wouldn't really even be a coach. I would pick Chael Sonnen just for the trash talking. <laughs> just so we can dish it all back to Dana. The greatest trash talker ever. I yeah. love Chael. We just had mentioned John Jones. 
Dana White said that, you know, John Jones is scared of Francis Nagano. Saying that people are scared of Francis is absolutely true. So we should talk about who Francis is. Right, the new heavyweight champion of the world. Before I started researching Francis, I had this stereotype of Francis in my head. I think that most people do, which is this huge African behemoth with power, right? And then like you start treating these people like Marvel characters. I think sometimes when we look at those like behemoths with power, we never associate them with intelligence, you know, or like hard work. We just always assume that they're gifted by God with this like Hulk strength. Mm. And I'm glad like after doing some more in-depth research on Francis, he's just the total package of human being. Like Stipe, you know, like a lot of these heavyweight fighters, but he's just an amazing person. And so Francis actually had a quote that I saw him mention in one of the interviews where he goes, if you have to figure out where you're going, you have to know where you came from. And mm. so I think we can start with where Francis came from which is the country of Cameroon, which is in central Western Africa, right? So Africa kind of looks like a gun pointing down. Cameroon is like right at the trigger, right? It is often called the hinge of Africa. And within Cameroon, you get all different types of climates like desert, jungle, swamp, forest, mountainous. So it's called like all of Africa in one. For the listeners, and even me too, since you're so equipped in the geography, most people, I think, think of Africa, they think of it as kind of one place, not really a conglomerate of countries. And they also kind of think that, you know, oh, Africa, that's like pretty much chaos. How does Cameroon fit that bill? So kind of like I was saying, even geographically, how it's like everything else, it's also economically and culturally like a lot of Africa, where it's had a lot of struggles. Right. And so 1960s, when it's got its first independence, in fact, the name Cameroon, it started with the Portuguese because when they sailed into Cameroon, uh, what they called Camoros, which means shrimp, because their rivers had a lot of shrimp in it. Mm -hmm. And then the Germans took it over. And so basically Cameroon means shrimp. They got their independence in 1960. And then in the 1980s and 1990s, like in a lot of West Africa, there was tons of war, like civil war. So imagine the United States we got our independence in 1776. It wasn't like 25 years later in the 1800s. It wasn't like peaceful. Oh, yeah. You know, it's still like, and so this I is- I had no France, idea. That's really recent independence. Yeah, that's crazy. Exactly. And yeah. so Francis was born in 1986. He's 34 years old. So he was born in the heart of like drought and like just like a new country being formed and yeah, being part of Africa, which is not like a place where we're like, oh yeah, let's go on our honeymoon, you know, to these areas, especially in the 90s. But there is a rich culture. There is some wrestling, some fighting history, boxing that happens there. But it is not fishing, you know, was, was like the predominant job for a lot of people, but it wasn't easy for anybody. And Francis grew up in this. And one thing that's interesting about Francis is at six years old, he realized I have to get out of here. Like, I want to have bigger dreams. And to me, that's like so fascinating at such a young age. Mm. He learned this. You know, this is a hard life. At the age of 10 years old, Francis started working in a sand mine. Like he had to literally work to pay for school. And he talked about how he was the poorest kid in his classes. He would have to walk two hours to school. The type of stuff that like our grandparents say to like scare us 
is like the things that he had to do. He's like, I had to walk two hours to school then I would get to school. And he's like, I would be so hungry by 3 p.m. Like I couldn't afford food. He's like, I'm getting home 6 p.m. Like food, this is the reason in New York City, we don't shut down schools, by the way, is because a lot of kids in New York City rely on the school meal as their meal, right? And then in Africa, they don't have, it's like, you're just starving, you know? And he is somebody that grew up in like the, a very hard way, but he grew up seeing Mike Tyson and he goes, I want to be like that. And thinking boxing is going to get him out. His father was very abusive. He said like beat his mom and violent. And so this is something he saw at an early age. And by the time he was six, his parents divorced. He had to live with his aunt. And he learned afterwards when he started living with his aunt, what people said about his father and how his father was like this street fighter. Like that's how he'd make money. Yeah, that's, that's what I had heard that his father was known as like, had a reputation as a fighter, but not in a good way. Yeah. And you know, when you grow up in poverty, you also grow up around people that have like PTSD, anxiety, alcohol, oh. like, you know, like it's just like a hotbed of more things. Like you hate your life. Like, you know, like people here, we get miserable at our mundane life and have to numb ourselves with drugs. You know, like it makes more sense that some people are violent and do terrible shit and it's sad, but Francis had to see this at a young age. And he just kind of worked his way up, saving some money. And eventually like after some schooling, he's like, I have to get out of here. And he said, he gave his sister some money and he was like, I'm planning on going North. And this was like around the age of 22, he started like, learning a little bit of boxing, like informally in Africa. And then he was like, I gotta go North. It wasn't even where or how, it was just like North. And uh, he started going North, he went through Nigeria. Then I think he said Nigeria to Niger, to Algeria, to Morocco. And then it took him like multiple, multiple times to get into Spain. And they knew they were going to get arrested once they went into Spain. And he had to spend like two months in jail in Spain. And so, yeah, Francis Ngannou is one of these refugees that you see on these rafts that are cruising the Mediterranean trying to get into Europe. And it becomes like a whole debate. Like, obviously, he's like an illegal alien, like a refugee. But, you know, in my head, some of this reflection, I told you, they got their independence in 1960. And before that, they were controlled by France. And so it kind of makes sense. You know, like, it's like karma. Some of these people are like, all right, you made us French. You are Nate. We learned France in school, st- French in school still to this day. They're going to make it there in some mm. way, you know? And he got to Spain, spent two months in, in jail in Spain, and then eventually got to France at 23. And then I think that was the first time he started, like, even know his old mentality was boxing. And then... One of his coaches, this guy he met, Fernando Lomez, Lopez, and uh, he happened to also be from Cameroon. And that guy probably related a little bit to Francis Ngannou and was like, all right, you could even stay here, you know? And Francis was like living in parking lots in France. And he said on the Joe Rogan show and other places, he goes, I didn't care. He's like, it didn't feel like homelessness to me. He's like, it felt like I'm somewhere where now I could pursue something. Mm. And he didn't start training in MMA or like fight until he was 26. And that's like, we live in an age where now like you get your kid in QB practice at like six years old, seven years old, you send them to camps and that's how they get drafted high. 
And here's Francis, the world heavyweight champion now that just started training not even 10 years ago. And it makes me wonder how many people in the world are out there that are like Francis, that are like working in sand mines, that have the potential, not only in fighting, but in just anything. You know, yeah. they just might be a secret genius. Isn't that sad, though, that it took him, like, getting to France, and then once he's in France, he's like, oh, I actually believe I can actually go somewhere and do something. Or, like, being in Cameroon, uh, he was just like, this, this is it. That, that's a great point, because he even said he always goes back to Cameroon now. He's one of mm -hmm. these people that has not left and then been like, oh, yeah, I'm out, and started buying diamonds. He started the Francis Ngannou Foundation. He built a gym. That was like, that's the only combat gym in Cameroon. And when I saw the drills that the kids were doing, they were shrimping, they were doing triangles. And it's like, once again, going back to what I thought about Francis Ngannou, I thought it was just this big brute power person, but actually his first win was like a Kimura, you know? And then he also had a standing mm -hmm. guillotine and like he had a Kimura in uh, the UFC as well. And it's kind of like, Wait up, this guy's multifaceted and he can become even better. He's still somewhat new at the sport and he's just giving back. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's part of the fear. I think when people talk about him as being like the scariest fighter, it's not just his knockout power. It's scary because of how much he's learning. Like he still has, he's still learning on this job and the fact that he's like champion, which would be like, you're better than everyone. And you're still learning so much. Like usually by the time you're champion, you're peaking. This mm -hmm. guy's still way on the come up. So mm -hmm. I think that's what makes him like so scary. It's like, all right, you can plan for this guy. Let's say like you've seen all the video, you plan for him. All right, I've got him down. Well, the version of Francis that you fight in three months can be a whole new version of him. And like, that's awful. And he is learning so much for each fight. I believe he only had six fights before he got into the UFC and nobody yeah. else in Europe wanted to fight him at all. And mm -hmm. then they called him and then I still doubt people want to fight him that much, you know? Like he's here's, just- Here's what I think is so funny about Francis is despite this, this power, despite his like incredible story of hardship, I've never seen him talk with an even ounce of anger never raises voice he's so soft-spoken calm and nice it's the craziest thing like here's a guy with tyson-like power but he's so nice so this is what's also interesting the one negative thing i saw about francis was that his coach his old coach said that he had an ego problem and then going back to what you just said about Dana White and how he says fucked up shit about his fighters. After after uh, Nganu fought Derek Lewis, basically oh, Dana, Dana White was like, oh, he's got an ego problem. Like, you know, he's like, he's kind of off of it. He like lost his mind. And, you know, in my head, I'm thinking like, that's kind of really brutal what you're saying to him. And people don't understand because Francis Nganu responded to that. And he was like, yo, I'm still learning, you know, like I'm still growing. And he's like, I may have an ego, but all fighters have to have an ego, but I'm not doing it to hurt the people that I know. And I'm also thinking like, it's not like this guy had a huge education, psychology, you know, and understanding right. people and business relations. And like, who do you trust in this world? You know, because one of the things the coach said was, oh, he fought a bad fight against Stipe and he didn't 
tell people that he didn't follow the game plan. He was quiet. And so basically the coach wanted some like pressure off his shoulders. And in my head, I'm a little bit like, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be I, doing that. I think quieter guys or people that are more soft-spoken tend to get thrown under the bus more. That's a good point. So I think like when something goes wrong, nothing even went wrong for Francis. He just had like, it was an awful fight. It was not fun at all. Everyone expected someone dropping in the first minute uh, because it didn't go like that. And it was a decision. Yeah, I feel people like just sold him to the river. Again, I'm going to reiterate the point of Dana White. Imagine like you mess up at work and then your boss goes to the entire work company, tells everyone how you messed up, how you have an ego, all this thing but he's still employing you. Like, he's not even like, if you were that mad, you'd fire him, but you don't, you just do this to like, you know, make yourself seem like, Oh, I'm outraged with you guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then it's like, dude, that's your employee. Like, that's also like your product. Like, I I don't know. Like you could just be quiet and just be like, ah, yeah, that, that sucked. Like, just keep it simple. But instead you're like, he's got an ego. He should have did this. He should have did that. Like, it's just rough. Francis said I messed up in the Stipe fight. And then he later said he was afraid of losing twice in a row. And if you come from digging dirt for a living at 10 years old, like I get like why you might have an additional fear thing. And it's not like he was scared for 10 years and changed his life. Like give people like a month, like to like, you know, like get their bearings together. You don't know what you feel always at that moment. And that might not be the correct feeling. And Francis, like, he just has some great quotes about who he is that I wanted to read. When I started, I had nothing, nothing. I needed everything. But when you start to earn money, you start collecting things. I want this, I want that, I want this. The purpose is not collecting things though. The purpose should be to do something great. Finish the dream you started. I want to help my family first, of course, but then I want to give opportunities to children in my country like me who have a dream to become a doctor or something. If I reach my dream, it will give me the opportunity to help those in my country who have their own dreams and no help to fulfill them. I want to give some opportunity for children like me who dream of this sport and who don't have an opportunity like me. The last time I was in Cameroon, I brought a lot of materials for boxing and MMA to open a gym. Now I just bought a big place to start a gym as well. A lot of children now in Cameroon, because of me, they have a dream. They say, I will be a champion in MMA. I will do boxing like Francis because they saw me when I was young. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any opportunity. And today they see me and they are dreaming. They are thinking that something is possible. Even when they are so poor, something is possible in life. It's not easy. It's so hard, but it's possible. And that's just talking about other people. And he it's said so when he was in- it, That's such an awesome message. That's such a, a success. Like he cannot do anything for the rest of his life at this point. And it's like, he's done everything that needs to be done. He, he's a hero. And, and I would mm-hmm. like to tie it into a couple things. You know, he's still like an illegal alien, you know? And when he went into Africa, France as a refugee, he's like, nobody liked me and nobody likes homeless people, you know? And like, no, like, so you're still unliked, you know? And then when you are fighting in the UFC, sometimes you're the bad guy because you're the big guy, you know? And like, people are rooting for you. So it's like, it's gotta be difficult to always be like looked at as like a scary person. And then here he is just talking about wanting to give back. And I saw in videos, he was giving Mm -hmm. mattresses to people. So it wasn't even just gym stuff. Like he's like, oh, they need this. Like people don't understand. When I looked up where he's from, Bati in Cameroon, the Wikipedia article mentioned, oh yeah, it has a paved road. 
and they mentioned like oh wow how many, like two taxis it was like people would laugh like they don't believe it's true but i feel like a lot of people in america yeah. don't understand how the rest of the world is in certain places and he came from nothing and who knows what he can start now in Cameroon because there are terrific athletes from there. Joel Embiid is from there, you know, and like they have nothing. And if these people now have tens of millions of dollars to invest in the athletics there, like look at Dagestan, you know, you can have hotbeds mm-hmm. of activity where like they form and now you have like legendary groups. And it's just amazing to see what Francis is starting. And I think like in our this is why we started philosophy of fighting podcasts. Like who knows where these things lead, right? These aren't just brutish people. And yes. anybody like Francis just sees him and doesn't hear him talk is terrified of the man, you know, like yeah. a 34 year old, six foot four, 265 pound, big African dude that can murder you. But also the strongest recorded punch in history, like by yes. metric, you know? So yeah imagine i mean he has like the kiss of death in his hands mm-hmm. and here's the crazier thing if you were to watch francis fight he'll knock people out with just an arm punch and what i mean by arm punch for a listener they may not understand is a punch where i'm not like pushing off the floor at my foot turning the hip i'm not throwing my body into it he'll catch it with just his arm moving for a hook and you'll drop like you've been hit by a truck And I think that's what makes him even more dangerous is because when you're fighting, you can pick up on all these cues of like what their feet are doing for the faint, like what they're going to be doing. You can almost like it helps you prepare for the punch, right? Like, again, we've gone over this, like the the, the, the most dangerous punch is the one you don't see. Mm -hmm. The one you don't see is the one where it's not set up at all. It just hits you, right? And Francis has this thing where like he doesn't need to put power into it. It's just when it hits you, it's like magic and you drop. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the hardest part. So people are like, oh, he doesn't have great technique. Oh, he doesn't have this or that. I'm like, actually, that helps this case way more. That, that, that's interesting. That's like using your awkwardness and unorthodoxness, right? Mm-hmm. To just like trick people who are, because he fought Alistair Overeem and Rosenstreich, who are accomplished kickboxers. That's an understatement. They're, they're two of the, gra- the greatest strikers in MMA history, and Francis crushed them both. That, yeah, see, I, I like the way that you said that. Exactly. And we, sometimes we underestimate these people because we see them lose, and then we realize, oh, yeah, they're also, like, superheroes, like, you know, in terms of, like, talent level and yeah. compared to the average human. Yeah, Alistair Overeem looks like a freaking centaur. He dominated. <laughs> he's been fighting for four decades now. I think he's in his fourth decade. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just think uh, the sky is still the limit for him. Like anything yeah. is possible and he might become the potential to be like one of the biggest stars in the world. You know, 100%. like that's why I think Dana White is happy because his story, his humility, he not, like his English improved so much in the last like two, three years. Yeah. I saw like a lot of YouTube comments, people like, yeah. And I thought that was also another like interesting aspect where you know, sometimes you had these great fighters like Fedor, even Anderson Silva. And sometimes they were hindered because they weren't able to express themselves that much. And now people are hearing Francis talk and you're like, oh my God, this guy's such a great guy. And so he speaks the local African language in Cameroon. He speaks French, he speaks English. Like this is a guy without the greatest formal education. And now he's a heavyweight champion, but he's so learned and smart and understands the world in an interesting way. He's seen so much of it. 
Uh, and, and let's talk about his career. He's knocking everyone out in just about a minute. He just defeated what people argue as the greatest heavyweight of all time. Mm-hmm. Now it looks like he's being lined up to fight the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. So yep. if he gets that under his resume, now we're talking like, how do we not call Francis the greatest of all time? Exactly. And he's still learning. And you're like, this is this is a little crazy. Now, he is older and still learning, which we may never even see the full potential of what Francis would have ever been. But and that's crazy. But one thing is, he's still young, I think, in his body because he hasn't yes. had wars. He's knocking everybody out in like 30 right. seconds. So, and he's only been training boxing since what, 22 informally, where right. some of the, everybody in the UFC now has probably done some sort of wrestling or something starting at the age of 16. So their bodies are, some of them are, are more worn than Francis. Like he looks- Oh yeah, fresh. for sure. Yeah, there's a bunch of fighters that have way more wear than Francis. Francis can easily go into his 40s and still be fighting. Uh, heavyweight is always weird, though, because, like, you know, every loss can definitely take off more time. Heavyweights definitely have, like, the shorter mm. careers of everybody. But, but they um, fight longer. They fight to older ages. They fight it's to powerful. older ages, but they, but they lose their – they don't stay on top long. We went, like, three decades where the UFC heavyweight title – wasn't defended more than twice. Yeah, but they were always old people. Lesnar was old. Couture was old. Cormier's old. Stipe's 38 now. Well, now he lost it, but he was 36. This you know what I mean? Like, right, like, I don't, I don't know. I mean... Francis is 34. I think he's, like, young for heavyweight. Yeah, I mean, he still has a long time. He, yeah, he does have a long time. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, that, that's exciting. So here's the question. Do you think John Jones is the next fight? I'm worried the UFC is going to say, we don't want to set a precedent giving this fighter the money. The same way Walmart doesn't want unions or Amazon doesn't want unions. The UFC does not want a fighter's union and they don't want to be like, oh, we'll give John what he wants, kind of. So I could see them being like, let's do Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis is like, I'll fight him for cheaper. And so I think you might get Derek Lewis first. For the earlier, we talked about Francis Nagano's fight where Dana White basically dragged him over the coals and called him out. And that was his fight with Derek Lewis the first time. Mm-hmm. And then we would have this second fight again where we would just be repeating a match where the first clash was like the worst, arguably the worst fight of all time. And now we're just going to do that again instead of giving Stipe a rematch or getting the greatest mixed martial artist to get a heavyweight shot like there's so many better options i know Derek is like deserving of one but i mean we're really you don't think john or stipe deserve it more like that's crazy has stipe said anything after the fight I, I, not I mean, that i know of but i don't care that guy gets a red carpet you know yeah I'm just worried about Stipe. Part of me is like scared of anybody that fights Francis. Like, yeah. Cause I don't understand even with the physics. Like, if Actually, they say, I'm not scared for John. Yeah, no, I want John to get, he's the only one. Good point. All right. But so, if, if, go ahead. But hold on. If they say that he hits as hard as a car, right? Or like the equivalent of a sledgehammer, how come people's skulls aren't breaking? Cause I could kill somebody with a sledgehammer. So I don't understand 
how he could hit somebody and they don't die. You know what I mean? When they say he hits okay. the fourth. Because a sledgehammer is made out of like lead, but his hand isn't. So it can still hit with the same force, but because it's not as dense, they have gloves on. You know what I mean? Like those things can get like different. All right, I got it. Yeah. Surface yes. area changes the the like the impact too, right? The law, the broader the surface area, the more it can spread the force. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, I guess. But it's still there's like other factors to it. Yeah. I'm just like worried that one day he's gonna kill somebody. People do break their skulls though. People do get cracks in part of their frontal. People you've seen people break their zygomatic arch before. Yeah. Like these yeah. things happen, broken jaws. I know, but the skull just sounds like scary. Yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 worried about the heavyweight division, except John, because I think that is the greatest fight ever, and John needs to lose once, like you know, after all the people he's destroyed. Uh, so let's talk about this a little bit. Let's get into the fighter pay because this is the reason why John Jones is not is not getting into the ring yet or the cage because he's demanding. I think eight to ten million dollars. Said more. I think it was more than that. I think that's okay. the floor he's talking. And about. he's kind of he's trying to kind of use the excuse of I've been underpaid for so many years. This kind of retroactively plus is the biggest fight ever. He's not wrong about those things. And I and I strongly dislike John Jones. I respect mm-hmm. John Jones. I think he's arguably the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. But I also think he's fighting the good fight because he does deserve more in the pay. So we'll get into this a little bit. John Jones, I think for his last fight with Dominic Reyes, made about 500K. All right. So he's asking for 10 million. That is 20 times more, which is a lot. Now, if Dana, instead of saying, you know, he's scared, doesn't want to fight. Instead of saying that, be like, hey, look at all of John's pay-per-views. Never once was there more than a million pay-per-view buys. That's a legitimate gripe. But mm-hmm. you know if he versus Francis, you're going to get way more than a million pay-per-view buys. 100%. As vocal as Dana is, then why not say like, oh, we offered him six? That way at least you put the onus on like, maybe public opinion starts to think like, oh, six is still significantly more. Maybe that's fairer. You know, at least it puts the idea that Dana's like, oh, but it sounds like Dana's just like, well, I'll give you a million. Maybe. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what I think Dana's thinking. Because I think Dana, I think like the way these billionaires think, man, we're thinking about now. I feel like billionaires are thinking like 20 years later and they're like, we can't set these precedents. And I feel like he would pay John. He just doesn't want anybody to know. Like, it has to be in secret. Like, yo, don't talk about how much you get paid because that way I could fuck over other people, you know? And John, yeah, you're right. You might be right. He's fighting the good fight, putting it out there. No, see, Dana White is like the Vince McMahon. I think a lot of people know how messed up Vince McMahon is in running his organization. He 1099s Mm -hmm. everyone. People can't post on social media things that aren't approved of him, even if it's personal accounts. They can't use Steam. They can't do anything. Because mm-hmm. Vince McMahon, even though you're 1099, he owns that persona. And even if you want to be like, oh, okay, I'm not going to use that persona. I'm going to make my own private profile. Nope, can't do that either. I know. It's not okay. So now this is what's really weird. It's like, oh, why can't this person do Fashion Nova or whatever? They can promote whatever and sell that. No, not allowed. 
right? Like, even though you're 1099, this is your sole income. You can't do anything else. Like, okay. All right. People are aware of this. Dana White is not that far off, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't allow sponsors either in the UFC, right? You get Reebok. Reebok's deal just ended. Now it's Venom. Yep. But the whole idea with Reebok, fighters used to get paid for, like, their sponsors to have on shorts. So, you know, so-and-so company would pay for a logo or a patch on their shorts and on their banner on the cage side and they get paid tons like i remember there was fighters talking about like fighters that were earning like 40k for their fights but making over 100k in sponsorships right you have seen nixed all of that because ufc was like oh no that could be money we're making and they were like oh we're actually getting sponsored by reebok so everyone has to wear reebok gear there's no other sponsors for fighters but as a consequence just because you know they're trying to save face like we'll be paying you Reebok will be paying you based on your ranking and how many fights you may have had. So like, you don't need to get other sponsors, but what they didn't say is how much less Reebok mm -hmm. will be paying them. Like mm -hmm. your boy, Brendan Schaub, that was a huge reason why he got into like fights with Dana White. And I think ultimately ended up like deciding this wasn't for him outside of like, okay, yes, he wasn't going to be a great heavyweight. Mm -hmm. but he's also like oh this doesn't pay enough for me to even stick around and just make money on yeah there's other opportunities jim brown famously left the nfl so he could start making movies you know and it's like yeah right. you have to you have to pay your athletes well otherwise they're going to do other things because now they have fame so yeah so let's talk about this so because because today we yeah. see fighters leaving to go to bellator a bit and bellator doesn't pay as much but bellator is just like the UFC old days, they allow whatever sponsors you want on their shorts, on their banners, and all that stuff. So fighters that are decently known can definitely fetch some decent sponsors and not have to worry about their pay from Bellator. And what's even nicer is they don't have to worry about their win bonus as much either. Mm -hmm. So some people, like, you know, they have to accept the fight, they need the feet, like, the sponsors can kind of help mitigate that. So, like, people are getting a little bit more enticed by Bellator because of that. It's interesting because Bellator is getting better. They're paying their fighters more and more. Bellator accumulated more than $100 million in losses from 2010 to 2018. But they had their first profitable years in 2019 and 2020, despite COVID shutting them down. Huge. Really? Which I found really interesting. How much did they yeah. make? Did it Here's the thing. So we know UFC fighters only make 16% of what the UFC makes, which is the lowest, lower than NBA, lower than all other sports, right? I think that the UFC made around 900 million in revenue. Okay. Well, so they say 16% is what fighters so like earn. A, it's like 150 million, 135 million. Right. Okay. So in Bellator's example, they were at 44.7 up until 2016. 44.7. Wow. And now it's expected to be actually a little above 50 for the fighters. Holy shit. So that's more than triple. If you just take in terms of scale, like uh, the big piece of the pie, what pie, how big of a slice of the pie do the fighters get? In Bellator, they get 50% of the pie. In the UFC, they get 17% of the pie. Yep. Interesting. Yep. People are liking the fact that Bellator is offering that much of its pay. It's like, oh, Bellator actually believes more in me of the fighter. 
Yeah. You know, so you can understand the appeal of Bellator. Now, we talked about the Reebok sponsorship deal with UFC. The Reebok deal with UFC actually just ended. And now it's the company Venom. So in the UFC with Reebok, it depended on the number of bouts you've had, what you were ranked, and if you were like a challenger or a champion. I'll just go on the highest end, right? Because we talked about like fighters getting over hundreds of thousands of dollars for sponsors. The champion, the highest category you can pay for one fight would be 40K from, from Reebok. That was the highest. And now they're touting that Venom pays more. They're like, oh, this is even better because now we're bringing in Venom and they're willing to pay our fighters more. Well, the biggest pay bump is that 40,000 turned to 42,000. And that's nothing. That's like not even inflation, probably. It has to go up probably even more. It's just budget yeah. numbers. And so every other, so like a challenger got paid 30K. Now they get paid 32K. A fighter who had 20, has more than 21 bouts gets paid 20K, but now just gets paid 21K, right? With 21 bouts, you know what I mean? Like that's worth way more than that. And that's a famous fighter that probably has tons of followers on Instagram and, you know, is well known. And that probably could have got a hundred thousand in sponsorships on his own. Right. So now like he's eliminated from that and has to get only 20% of that. And he has to do that with like a smile on his face. And I think some people don't realize either. Like we look at MMA as a single person sport but a lot of people look at this as a team sport because you have your trainers and you have trainers in brazilian jiu-jitsu maybe and striking and then you have manager like you're sharing that pay with like a lot of people that are putting in a lot of effort to build you up you have a team so once you start splitting it up it's even less you're not getting anything yeah it's interesting so here's the ufc coo lawrence epstein he says we're proud to say when it comes to the cash payment to athletes there will be across the board increases for every tier of the payout pursuant to the UFC promotional guidelines program. This is not a situation where the UFC is making money off this relationship with Venom. Mm -hmm. Do you buy that? No, the, the, you're getting a benefit. When you have a business, you, you have right. like certain duty to profit, but there's no way. So he's trying to pull it off as like, oh, this is just for the fighters. We're not making no. any money off of this. Well, if that was the case, then just let it be in the fighters' hands and let them get their own sponsors then. Yeah, exactly. I just, I don't, un like, how could you possibly say that? That's insane to me. Because you're a private company, you still don't have to answer to public, uh, public scrutiny. But that might change because the UFC's parent company, Endeavor, which is like the world's largest talent agency, is about to go public. And I think you're gonna to have to start putting out official numbers and specific numbers and revenue. And once that starts happening, we might see the UFC go from being a little bit more like sports entertainment and Vince McMahon, like you said, to being a little bit more like the NFL and the NBA and maybe slightly more regulated. And it's kind of heading there in terms of wealth, you know, like they did around a so. billion dollars in revenue. They're worth around $10 billion. That's getting up there yeah all right so let's go i have some more stats on just mma fighting in general because maybe people don't really understand like i saw a meme today about canelo making 35 million for his last fight and john jones making 500 000. 
And people are like, yeah, well, Canelo sells like 10 times the amount of pay-per-views. And I'm like, that's fine, but he's getting paid 70 times the amount. And Canelo's not selling 10 times the amount of pay-per-views. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk about pay for fighters because maybe people don't realize. Here's what I found interesting. Payouts are very low for most fighters. The median average is only 1250 bucks. With boxers, is that across all all organizations? All professionals, all. So obviously, there's a lot of low-level promotions, low professionals. Where okay, I get that. For boxers, that median was two thousand. So the mean average purse for an MMA athlete is twenty thousand five hundred and fifty-six dollars. Boxing was sixty-seven thousand nine hundred and forty-eight. Okay. So well over three times the amount, right? The mode for MMA fighters, right? The most most common appearing number is $1,000. 10% of all fighters are being paid about that amount. When it comes to the distribution, almost all earnings are concentrated at the very top with the top 20% of fighters earning 94% of all money in MMA. Mm-hmm. But that's like a good reflection of the world we live in. Right. One percent of of Americans have like, I believe, like 80 percent of all the wealth, you know, and it's just going to be and like 20 percent have like 90 percent of everything. Can I give one number? So the average UFC fighter makes one hundred forty seven thousand dollars a year. But once again, like you said, the majority of that, the average is skewed high. Right. That's why that's why I wanted to point out the medium first. And then the mode also, because most professionals make far less than that. Yeah. So again, like you'll give an average if your top guy makes an insane amount and then you can play it off like everyone's doing well, right? Pay is so concentrated amongst the top 10% that they earned over 80% of all the pay in all the states the data was collected. If you look, if you break it into a low, middle, and upper category, 36.3% of all purses are in the low category. 51%, of course, would be in the middle, right? That's what makes sense. 10% are in the upper, and 1.7 are in the elite category. Mm. Yeah, what the top 1%, top 1%. Um, the average household income in the United States is $45,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third of UFC fighters, that's 210 fighters, uh, 36% of the company make less than that. Right. So a third, a third of UFC fighters make less than the median uh, average US household. Uh, and 219 fighters, so 38%, they earned six figures in 2019. And in 2020, only 36%. So dropped by 2% earned six figures in 2019. So once again, these are some of like the top athletes in the world, not in the biggest sports, but, you know, they're making salaries that are closer to middle class salaries, even though. Right. And that would be fine. So I'm, I'm all for the argument where people are like, oh, you know, like this sport doesn't make as much because it doesn't generate that much interest in money. Right. The fair market is what controls that. That's not the case in the UFC. The money is being made. It's just not being given to the fighters. Yeah. That's the difference. It's like 
they are selling that they can make more and yet they don't I'm like all right well then they should go leave and go somewhere else and some do bellator becomes more appealing but again they're only making profits the last two years so mm -hmm. it's been hard to attract people because people are like, why am I going to sign with Bellator if they're going to go under next year or whatever, right? Like now people, now I think with Bellator rising, maybe you'll see that a little bit more. Maybe that pushes UFC, maybe UFC being pushed public, maybe that pushes a little bit more too. Yep. But UFC's had such a stranglehold on MMA and it still does, especially in America. It's tough to make that argument. Yeah, I mean, when I look at it, I see the UFC earns a billion dollars in revenue. They're worth around $10 billion. And that's larger than any NFL franchise. But obviously, the NFL has 32 franchises. But, you know, I see in the future, the UFC could get to that size. Why not? The UFC is far more global than what the NFL can be. And it would be nice to see, like, yeah, if you pay these fighters more, you're going to start getting the same way you were talking about these UFC fighters are going to go to Bellator. If you pay some of these fighters more, you're going to get people instead of training to go to the NBA or training to go to like, you know, like playing football, they're going to be like, yo, I want to be a fighter. Right. And you're going to get better athletes right. and you're going to get better competitors that are going to make your sport even better. And then you're going to have the greatest sport in the entire world. And so I kind of wish I saw a little bit less of like the dollar today and focus on the dollar of tomorrow. Yeah. 10 years ago, no one was leaving the UFC. People were getting cut from the UFC and that was like the end of your career. Mm -hmm. Now, these other promotions are seeing a little bit more worthy, right? People are leaving to go to one championship. People are leaving to go to Bellator, right? So people are leaving to go to the PFL. Yep, PFL. And it's all because they allow your own sponsors. They're starting to offer somewhat comparable pay longer contracts they're making money as well these other companies so like both bellator and pfl have tournaments where they pay the winner a million dollars most fighters don't get that opportunity most fighters if you're telling me you can win four fights and that fourth fight you'll win a million dollars you'll get paid those other fights too you can win a million dollars ufc never offers that at all yep so it, it becomes very appealing now. And I think you're going to see a lot more people leaving the UFC should the UFC keep how it's going. And that new Venom deal is just kind of evident. It's just PR mm -hmm. like, oh, we're paying them more. Oh, we're not making money off this. Yeah, that, that's, that's super duplicitous of them to say that. And I think similar to Francis, you're getting a lot of new people getting into the sport. And these people have incredible stories and one championship and the, the fight league like Bellator, they can tell stories too, you know, and now people can tell their own stories via social media. And, you know, then you're like, what, this is this guy's story. This is, and it's just a fun fight. And Ben Askren, Jake Paul is a great example of that. Cause you just want to see a fight sometimes. Like it's not always like the two best, yeah. like, it's like, no, that's just an interesting battle. That's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the UFC is in the prime position. And obviously, look, the UFC is full of geniuses because they're the ones that did this, you know? So, like, and you, you should attack the best. Yeah, I love the UFC, but, like, you do better, you know? Like, you have a chance to be the greatest organization in the world. Yeah, I'm at the point now where, like, I want to be watching these. I mean, I love MMA. I've watched Bellator before, but I don't watch them all. 
but now I want to watch them all just because I feel like they're doing the fighters a better justice. So our final thoughts on fighter pay. Look, obviously we live in a capitalist society and some of the people that are getting paid like dirt cheap in the UFC, I've never heard of them, right? And I'm necessarily not tuning into them and you could theoretically put anybody in fight in there. And so I agree with Diana White sometimes when it's like, we'll do more, show more. But also I would say like, Dana, like you're building a sport for the future. Like let's not nickel and dime everybody. You can't be as huge as you are in the UFC now and have people fighting over $50,000 scraps, like bonuses, you know, like it should be like, you get a knockout, you automatically get a $50,000 bonus. Like how much more are you going to have to pay per event? Oh, an extra 200,000 an event. Oh, so it's going to come out to over the course of the year, an extra $24 million. Who gives a fuck? You're getting more knockouts and you're making those people happier. They're going to start sharing more. It'll come back. Like you want, I see the UFC is becoming like, even bigger than the NFL, which is a hundred billion dollar thing. Like it should be like FIFA. It should be global. And so you should start thinking that way. And so, yeah, that's how I would like pay a little bit more, obviously with the capitalist society, but like at some point, yeah, share more of the revenue, like every other sport does and you'll grow. Like I think the other sports. Yeah. All right. So that's well put. If the UFC continues to do what they do, Things are going to change in the MMA landscape. I think other organizations are going to start spreading the talent. And I don't know if that's good or bad in the end game, but I think I'd like to believe that what's best for the fighters is choice and what's best for the fighters is what's best for the sport. Okay, fair. Well so said. I'll leave it at that. Uh, do you want to do one final note on Francis? Sure. I love Francis Nagano because he's so calm and nice and he doesn't seem to be saying any bad things about anyone and yet in the cage he has the touch of death and so in my head if you don't know Francis Nagano you should because I don't know what you can dislike about the guy at all I'll leave it at that okay and I would just like to say I think Francis uh like a lot of fighters it goes beyond sport you know, like he has so many contradictions, like, like from a sand mine to being a refugee, illegal immigrant, like living in Paris on the streets and then Vegas and then being like the world heavyweight champion just through effort, knowing it's six years old, I got to leave my town. Like, I think we quickly judge a lot of people in this world so easily. And I judged Francis as just like this brutish striker. I'm like, oh shit, he's got subs. Oh, he's teaching these kids shrimping. Like there's so much depth to a lot of these people and have different types of intelligence. So yeah, I think Francis is like what I also hope we get out of a lot of this like philosophy of fighting podcast where like people see like not fighting isn't just like blood. It's like, oh wow, this guy did this and cares about this and comes from this. And I think like Francis is that because anybody sees Francis on the street in the middle of the night, they're terrified. You know, but like if you see him and you shake his hand, you'll be meeting one of the coolest, most interesting people in the world today, right? Yeah. So like who knows who you're meeting. So yeah. So that's the thing. Yeah. If I feel like I, I if I were to cross Francis in the street, knowing Francis, 
I'd have no problems like getting a handshake from that guy. He just seems like he'd be so nice and caring. But if I didn't know Francis and saw him, then yes, I'd be very scared. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> that brings me to a point I've been thinking about since I've been researching Francis. Like just, and the word I use a lot is nice. Sure. And I was thinking like, who are other UFC fighters that are nice? And I was thinking oh. like, oh, Junior Dos Santos is so nice. I was like, oh, Daniel Cormier is so nice. I was You're like, leaving Steve- the nicest motherfucker out. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Of one course. Time. Yeah, but he didn't go with my uh, my point I was trying to make. I was thinking, do you think the he- the heavier guys tend to be the nicer guys? Because they also know they're the baddest guys. They don't have to like, you know what I mean? Like, Actually, I, feel- I, think, I think it might play out a little different. Sometimes when you're so big, like people will maybe not try to make eye contact with you or try to purposely ignore you just so you don't go their way. And maybe that's like hurtful to the bigger guy. So they feel like they have to be super nice to make up for like the intimidating look. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking. And I feel like that makes them nicer. And I was like, we're like the smaller maybe. people. We know the Napoleon complex. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, I got to cut one pop. We're like, all these big guys seem so like kind in a way, like gentle giants. Yeah. Yeah. Gentle giants until the cage door shuts. Yes. There is a lot of those now. Yeah, I love that. And I, that's another thing I love about this sport. Yeah, you have these gentle giants. Like when I hear Junior Dos Santos talk, I'm just like, you sound like such a nice person. Like uh-huh. maybe it's a Portuguese accent, but I just feel like you're a good dude. And he also came from like the streets of Brazil and gives back and cares. Like a lot of these fighters do that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to start, we're going to start doing more of that and talking about these people at a deeper level. Thanks for listening to the Philosophy of Fighting podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions, or if you would like to fight us, send us a DM on Instagram at philosophy underscore fighting.